Everyone and welcome to Ladies Night, the official podcast of US Chess Women. I'm your host Jennifer Shahadi and you're listening to the artist Huga of hugamusica.com and that is a song that certainly captured my heart. Oh Capablanca. His bishop was small. Thanks to everyone who supports the podcast through shares and reviews and Apple Live. If you want to get more involved in all we do at U.S. Chess to empower girls and women through chess, please consider a tax-deductible donation of any size to our U.S. Chess Women program and reach out to me with any questions. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Ladies' Night. This is Jennifer Shahadi, and today I have a super special guest, international master and women's grandmaster, Irene Sukandar. She's a five-time Olympian, the first WGM from Indonesia, the top-ranked female in Indonesia since 2006, when she would have been 13, right? 14, yeah. (laughs) 14. She's also the fifth-highest-rated player in Indonesia, period, men or women. Um, She actually earned that WGM title at just 16 years old, and she also has one grandmaster norm. She's got two degrees, a BA in English Lit, an MA in International Relations, which she earned in St. Louis at Webster University, where I was lucky enough to meet her when she was in St. Louis. But Irene is the talk of the chess town right now. She's very much in the news. She recently played the most viewed chess match in history. Amazing, with over 1 million concurrent viewers throughout, peaking at 1.3 million absolutely insane exposure for the game in her Indonesia and of course all over the world. Irene, welcome. So great to have you. Thanks, Jen. Hi. Um, Thanks for having me in your podcast. Well, we love having you here on Ladies Night. Tell me a little bit about how this most viewed match in chess history came about. Obviously, I didn't expect that it would it would be that big. And I didn't even know the, the record of uh, the live viewing in chess before that match. Only after that, I was told that uh, we were not tripling even. We were like 13 times uh, bigger than than the previous record and yes it, it was amazing although it started out with some uh, negativity at first but I'm just very happy and actually relieved that um, things have ended well and it's a very good promotion for Indonesian chess right now. I know that it's exploded since you've been on so many talk shows but let's back up And talk about a little bit how it came to be. So this all started um, in early March when the the well-known, very popular YouTuber and streamer, who's also a big friend of U.S. chess women, by the way, he has donated generously to our our program, Levy Rosman, was playing uh, a game on stream. Uh, um, His opponent was, you know, making some habits that are very typical for people who are using engine assistance, right? Like for those of you, Mm -hmm. I I have a lot of poker friends too, who might watch this. So I'm going to kind of break it down for them. So this 
This famous streamer, Levy Rosman, was playing a game and his opponent was completely unknown, didn't have a title, and he was making some sensational moves, but then also on some very, very obvious moves, like a recapture of a pawn or a recapture of a queen, he would also take a big chunk of time. That is considered suspicious because if you're a good player, you would make those recaptures instantly in a blitz game. And in poker, we had a kind of similar incident with a a man called uh, Apostle, uh, where he, he was like, he had some computer assistance. He was looking down in his lap very frequently to kind of like see what, what to do. So anyway, um, Levy made a comment about how this seemed very suspicious. And shortly thereafter, the, the account was flagged for fair play violations by chess.com, which has a very, very rigorous algorithm to catch you know, potential cheaters and cheaters, right? So at that point, Levy got in some trouble, right? From the, um, not from chess.com, but from the uh, mainstream Indonesian press. Right. It sounded like there was an article that got distributed, which was saying that the reason the player's account got shut down was because of the remarks on stream. And at what point did you become aware of this, this scandal? Yeah, I became aware. I can't, actually pinpoint the exact date, but at some point of my daily routine, somehow my social media was piled up with lots of comments, uh, lots of personal messages or DMs or anything like that, asking for my comments about uh, what has been happening. I didn't know that it went viral, but uh, because I'm not really checking my social media so much. But then at some point it became viral and everyone was just tweeting, everyone was just, um, you know, posting on Instagram about what's happening. Then I, okay, then I, I felt like, okay, I need to know what's going on. Like, this is this is my my world. This, this is my chess world. I, I tried to look at some resources and then, you know, just try to educate myself on what's going on. But I already have my own opinion after that. But since people try to persuade me, like, come on, Irene, you're the chess expert. Because everyone seems like going to me uh, asking for this. Uh, and then I said, oh, uh, I will ask uh, the related people about this, uh, but I, I can't promise anything. Uh, let's see how it goes and something like that. And so during those few days when I remained silent, the news just got bigger and bigger and is like out of control. Until in the end, my federation tried to, we told our IT guys to actually look into the data and try to translate it to non-chess fears. Because it's very easy to communicate between the chess players, uh, you know, the terms and everything else. And we know online chess and offline chess. So, But for the non-chess fears who are just like, so let's say in Indonesia, there there is 1 million population of um, of chess players. We are about 275 million population in total. So it's very hard uh, for us to actually educate the non-chess fears about all the data and everything else. Because uh, as we know, chess.com doesn't really give any any clarification or explanation. They just have to, you know, it's their policy that they ban people and that's it. So that it was, yeah, we, we took things, uh, the Federation took things into consideration that they're gathering all the data and then put some graphics uh, as comparison Dewa Kipas graphic and my graphic and Susanto's Susanto Megarantos graphic, uh, which by the way is the number one chess player in Indonesia right now by rating. So the non-chess players can actually tell the differences. 
such as that my graphic can be can be like hills or valley, like it's, it's going up and down and up and down. And my range was like 45 to 95% accuracy. Susanto, not much different, about 50 to 95. But this guy in question from 20, 22nd of February until 2nd of March, if I'm not mistaken, uh, he had a graphic of 90 to 99% accuracy, which is crazy. And the account also had like a 27 streaks, which is like, um, you know, like world champions accuracy. So anyway, and, and any other data, we, we also presented so many data so that uh, those non-chess viewers could actually understand what we understood. After that, um, there was this podcast coming along and it gives so much uh, exposure to the, to the case. I happen to feel that, okay, there are some things that need to be strengthened, uh, straightened out because, uh, some of the, some of the things that he said during the podcast weren't really the truth. Yeah. That was, I think, the start of all this, uh, online bullying and sort of things to me. This was Daddy, um, Corbusier. Um, Corbusier, yeah. Corbusier. So Daddy Corbusier, who is a very famous Indonesian uh, podcaster and YouTuber. And originally I, I was reading about how he got his start as a magician. So he was yes. a mentalist and magician and very fit, um, good looking man who seems to be um, extremely um, famous in Indonesia and even beyond. Um, what did you know about this podcast and this podcaster before you became um, a multi-time guest. Were you a, a listener of the show? So in chronological order, when Daddy had a podcast with uh, Mr. Dadang Subur, the Dewaki mm-hmm. or Dewaki Pass, they had this podcast on Wednesday. I can't remember the date, but it was on Wednesday. And on Friday, we held a press conference, the Chess Federation, Indonesian Chess Federation, and Susanto and I were one of the speakers as well. And then on Saturday, the podcast was published. So that was the chronological order. And then on Sunday, I wrote an open letter to Daddy saying that, um, you know, just based on what uh, the conversation on the podcast, I just felt that I should give some clarification about things that the viewers uh, didn't know before because I have the data with me and some other things as well. That's saying one of the main things was that I want to clarify the image of chess in Indonesia because uh, Mr. Dadang said that there is no money in chess, especially in Indonesia. Uh, you have to gamble in order to make some living and something like that. I felt that if, you know, like uh, the parents of, of young chess players or even, even young chess players uh, watch that podcast and they were already training so hard and then just by by watching that comment or listening to that comment, it would actually discourage them from from learning, you know? Then I just have to clarify this. Oh, come on, look at me. I'm a chess professional. I can make a living out of this, like professionally. And that chess in Indonesia is, is quite promising if you are actually excelling at this. So there are so many things that I'd like to say, but uh, my podcast with Neri seemed to be cut out. Like um, we didn't seem to have enough time. He just... Uh, finish it uh, a bit too early in my opinion so after that after especially after my open letter on Sunday uh, the media started uh, giving me so much attention and and after that it's not all positive Uh, actually more was negative and during one week I just had to I just had to be very strong you know about all this online bullying because 
there's so many accusations uh, came to me where I was only like presenting the data and trying to clarify things out. But anyway, all is well now. <laughs> it's incredibly brave what you did. So I did want to get a sense of the significance of um, this podcaster in Indonesia. Had you heard mm -hmm. of him and were you listening to his show before chess kind of became a major subject on the show for, you know, uh, over a week? Well, I know of him. He's um, he's a public figure since I was like a child. So I know of him and he's like, okay, he was a magician before, a mentalist, and he became a, a TV host and, you know, just those sort of showbiz. And and recently, yeah, during the pandemic especially, he became one of the most popular uh, YouTuber for his podcast. I didn't really watch him before. But maybe I, I watched some clips, but not very much into the podcast. But yeah, I know I know how big influence he has for the Indo Indonesian netizens, we call it. I saw a Reddit thread that compared him to uh, like the Indonesian Joe Rogan. I don't know if you know Joe Rogan in yeah, the United yeah. States. In terms of popularity and like being able to like kind of shift from like one narrower career to like a mainstream voice, I, I could kind of can see some of the similarities there. So what about the actual chess player? Did Dewa Kipas, it was his chess.com mm -hmm. chess name. Mm -hmm. Did you hear of him prior to this or no? Was that somebody you knew of before the uh, the incident? No, I haven't heard of him before, before this case. Uh, and nor nor did my friends. I've asked many friends of mine, and especially those in the, in the national team. And no, they, they also never heard of him. So yeah, that was uh, something you know that we, we, we had, uh, of course, we had our internal conversation about this. And that's why I came to the conclusion that I should, I should write an open letter, you know, just not only to speak out for myself, but also most of the Indonesian chess community, uh, they also have this concern, the same one as mine. And so why was it you that wrote the open letter? Because it sounded like there were more members of the Indonesian chess community that also kind of like in your federation where they compiled this data to kind of try to show um, the math behind it so that it didn't look like some arbitrary, um, you know, decision. Uh, why were you um, elected? Was it random or did you volunteer yourself? No, it wasn't. There was no election or anything like that. I wrote it on behalf of myself. It was a it was a personal letter. I wasn't I wasn't doing it on behalf of my federation or anyone. It was it was personally for me because since I got my woman grandmaster title, the first one in Indonesia when I was sixteen, I've been trying to promote chess in Indonesia in every every aspect that is possible. For example, I have to key in three main things here that probably the stigmatized of you know, Indonesian chess, like first of all about feminism, like before I got this title, of course, women chess players in Indonesia, they're not very uh, developed compared to men's. I think same in other countries as well. But since I got this title, I was so happy that I can be the pioneer and I could see there are so many, so many girls playing chess right now in my country. And for the past few years, Women's chess in Indonesia, we are actually achieving more than the men's chess in terms of achievements. So we are we are currently the second in the in the continent because I think six months ago we have this Asian Nations Cup where the Indonesian women's team went to the final, but we lost to India. But anyway, it was already a, a very uh, high milestone for Indonesian chess. 
so that was part, there was one, uh, the feminism. And secondly, about education. Uh, so Indonesia, trust has been stigmatized as, you know, like unemployed game. Uh, and for those who are not, those who are not working and then just basically spending their time just playing chess or probably gambling, you know, at the coffee shop or anything like that. And I'd like to show them that to be a chess professional can also be educated. So that's why I, I challenge myself to, you know, while also doing my chess professionally, I finished my bachelor degree and actually went overseas to get my master's uh, in the U.S. I, I'd like to be a living proof that, you know, as a woman, I can also do professional chess and I can also do uh, my education well. And then the third part is, uh, which also as important as before, is about financial. Uh, because I think about all this education, feminism and financial, they're just like, they go hand in hand. And yeah, because chess is seen as um, non-selling sport in Indonesia, you know, like me, when I'm growing up, uh, many chess parents ask me like, Irene, can you actually, you know, be be successful or make living out of chess? Like, uh, how is it, you know, because I want, I want my daughter, I want my son to play chess, but I'm worried that it doesn't really give them any, any good future. Then I said, oh, I mean, look at me. I think I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good. I mean, at that stage uh, about financial, I don't really have any worry. Uh, as long as you can do, you know, not only professional chess, but also do other things that that enrich yourself. And chess is just, uh, for me now, not only a profession, but also a tool to opening many doors for opportunities. So from three these points, uh, I'd like to be living proof that as a woman, I can be a chess grandmaster, be educated and have a good financial life. After that podcast, I felt like my dreams to promote chess in such a way to give in, to give such a good image. And it's like all my hard work to build this image for chess in Indonesia have been shattered. So that's why I, I, I wrote this open letter, just come on. We have to stop this, you know, don't don't give more negativity to Indonesian chess, uh, let alone, you know, like, for example, this issue, we have the data and and the data itself has 90 95% accuracy. Like, why would people focus on the 5%? Yeah, for me, it doesn't really make sense. So that's why uh, I felt like I have to be there. I know, I know the risk that I'm taking. I know because the, the, the case was so big already and if I stepped in no matter what I said whether it's right or wrong people would bully me people would uh, talk bad about me but I think uh, my family really strengthened me and all along I felt that that actually the truth protects me so in the end I could come out like this because I've been holding to the truth since the first time I, I came out to public that's amazing. I mean, I think some people who listen might not understand the extent of online bullying. I have been online bullied myself. So I immediately kind of sympathize, you know, with you and Levy, um, you know, first with Levy, because, you know, my brother was playing him in the I'm not a GM event. Of course, I quickly realized how serious the, um, the online harassment he was experiencing was. And I, uh, I really felt bad for him because I, I know that it was also affecting his, um, his girlfriend and the, the fears, of course, the, um, the fear when you get that type of online harassment is that not only do you have all these messages to filter through, 
But you also have to worry about getting your account hacked. Mm-hmm. Um, then I, I did notice your Twitter feed, by the way. Um, you retweeted something by um, the poker professional, Daniel Negreanu, who wrote, um, do you ever refrain from posting your thoughts and opinions on social media for fear that you will be attacked for what may be considered an unpopular opinion? Now, this tweet was around March 10th, and that was a few de- days before, I believe, you sent that open letter. And so it sounded like you were really wrestling with the decision at that point. Yes, it was a hard decision, actually, because I don't know whether it was quite late for me to actually speak up or not. At that moment, maybe I, we could have prevented it if we spoke up earlier, but we just didn't know that this thing would, would get this big. Um, it's really out of hand. I was debating with myself and I was also thinking about my family. Like, I know how how scary Indonesian netizens can be. And, and this is something, you know, that I cannot take it lightly. But yeah, after listening to some opinions, uh, those who are close to me, I was, okay, let's do this. I think it's more important um, to actually care about the opinion from the people who are close to me um, compared to those who actually don't know me. So in that regard, I felt like, yes, this is, this is something that I need, I need to come out with and gave another perspective for the Indonesian viewers to the story. Because up to that moment, they've only listened to one story of this case. And I think it was the time for me to actually present another, another perspective. Now, you expected that you were going to get some online harassment because of your open letter. Um, was your prediction accurate or was it way worse than you thought it was going to be? Because I did hear something about a million messages. Way worse, way worse. And especially on Instagram and my YouTube channel has been bombing with, with many hate messages as well. Although now it's cleared out. Although now I have my own like fan base. Like, so whenever there is somebody who is actually talking me down, the other people would try to cover me like, come on. The, the case is, is done. Irene is, you know, has proven right and so on, which is fine now. Yeah. But the whole thing was, was not according to my prediction at all, at all. I actually had to be away from a social media for a few days before the match, just because I didn't see the point of playing my social media anymore. Uh, earlier on, I, I just wanted to connect with my friends, with some of my fans. Everything was in a positive vibe. But uh, a few days before the match, Things just get very, very nasty. So I I just log out of everything, uh, make my disappearance for a while because I just wanted to focus on the match, uh, not because I was afraid of the match, because some actually some people already asking me, like, oh, what do you feel about about the match? Like, well, technically, the, I, I you know, I've, I felt confident that I would win the match, but I was actually worried about myself that I couldn't control myself. I couldn't control my emotion. I got distracted and, and so on and so on because there was a very, very high uh, public pressure on my shoulder. And I know those who are really rooting for me, those who are really rooting for the truth, they are putting their expectation on me. But of course, during the, the day, the match day, I could still see that the netizens were quite divided between between me and and Mr. Dadang Subur. But after the match, like everything just changed drastically, totally drastically. I didn't know it could be this big. <laughs> 
Did you feel like the um, messages and attacks were even worse because you're a woman? Because I, I know Levy got really, really bad comments as well. And so did his girlfriend. Was gender, because uh, you, you mentioned your feminism as one of the reasons that you came forward. Mm. Do you think that also resulted in even worse online bullying? I tried not to read so many comments, actually. But uh, I think, yeah, out of out of almost like a million messages, you can find all sort of insults. Mm including sexism so it, it it can't be separated but yeah there are so many there were so many comments like oh i'm just trying to get attention and that i wasn't recognized before as you know it's just so many nasty comments like that but me as a woman i think i tried not to read so many comments like i only did it in the first days of of, of my open letter but after that okay this is this is not doing anything good for me so i just have to let it go you just stopped watching. And then when you did play the match um, on the uh, Close the Door podcast, was there any doubt in your mind that, you know, maybe this, maybe, you know, he could be like a master level player? Because, oh, okay, you know, you could cheat as a 2200, you could cheat as a 1200. And with you being so flooded with um, other concerns and emotions, was there any doubt in your mind or fear that maybe he was an okay player? Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, because when you played someone who who you haven't played before, you you had this doubt, right? And I was like, um, I have to prove that I'm right. And also before the game or before the match, I I prepared as normally, you know. I I downloaded his games on chess.com, uh, but I separated the games where uh, we suspected this account to be cheating for that period that is from 22nd of February until 2nd of March. So I was only focusing on the games before 22nd of February. The quality of the games uh, were so much different and openings that use are also different. Like for example, after 22nd of February, he was focusing so much on Sicilian and monstrously good at Sicilian. Let it be like Taimanov or Naidov. I was so amazed. Uh, by the quality of the of the play, but before twenty second of February, he was pretty much a caravan player, and um, to the level where I would expect him to be. So during my preparation, I almost didn't touch any of my Sicilian vile. I was only focusing on the caravan and S white. Uh, me playing e four, and he would play c six. And yeah, that was that was what happened during our match. And and as black. I was expecting him to play d4, like the normal Queen's Indian type structure. Uh, whereas after 22nd of February, he also played lots of like rarity or English uh, openings. Uh, but yeah, so there was some preparation before the match that actually gave me more confidence about, about the play that if turns out in the game, he played something else that he played something that he, he played after 22nd of February, then I would raise my suspects my suspicion even even higher, but during the game and I could see the way he played as well, I was like, okay, he's not a he's not a non you know, he's not a chess professional anyway. So And the first game was a Karokan and you chose mm-hmm. this like exchange variation with, you know, Bishop D three and Bishop F four. Mm-hmm. You know, you got a very nice position. At what point in the game did you realize, okay, like th- this really is a very beginner player and I'm going to win this completely easily. Was it when he blundered a piece or was it earlier than that? 
much earlier. I think on the fifth move. Yes. Uh, so in the Karakan, E4, C6, this exchange variation, right? D4, D5, uh, E, D5, C, D5. And then I played what? Bishop, D3, Knight, C6, C3. C3 was my fifth move. And uh, at that point, he played E6, which is a big no-no for Karakan player because you have to develop your bishop on C8. Uh, okay, this is more a technical answer right but when when he played e6 i was like oh okay he doesn't know theory and i felt like okay i can i can win this match uh quite smoothly and yeah somehow my my confidence was just boost because that was definitely the, the move that you shouldn't play in such a position let it be it's karakan or exchange love it can also be you know similar opening as well yeah and then toward the continuation of the game and he blundered the piece and i was like okay i think i can i can do well for the rest of the match <laughs> yeah so you're usually you you put your knight on f6 to try to play bishop g4 and you know develop that bishop on c8 right yeah and is that your normal opening against the Karo Khan? this exchange variation with the bishop d3 and bishop f4 ideas or were you playing it specifically because you thought it would be easy to play in this uh it was game 10 right format it was uh yeah that that variation is is one of my my main repertoire for this match even though technically i would be in the upper hand but i i didn't let myself to be you know like choosing the best and the second best of my openings or anything i just want to give my best for this match because the risk is just too high if i lost so that's why I played this Karakan exchange variation uh, because it's one of my main repertoire. And I just, you know, I know this opening quite well and I think I can also dwell against him. That's why. And so you felt this like kind of sigh of release as soon as he played E6 that this was going to be an easy match. Yeah, easier than I thought, I would mm -hmm. say, because it, it could really be a sign that if you're really in the master level, you wouldn't do such a, such a mistake very early in the game. I could feel it because I mean... I know, you know, playing a high stakes match like this, even as a great professional player, um, there's always like this little bit of fear maybe that, you know, mm -hmm. you'll make a mistake or a blunder. And if he's 2000 strength instead of 1200 strength, you know, you could lose one game, right? It's possible. Yeah. Um, but uh, after like E6 and then also knight E4 was a very bad move. Just having to play the knight back to F6. I could kind of mm -hmm. feel your body language like, okay. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> it's, it's you fine. know, I was, I was actually, I was actually putting my hands over my head. I just really want to be focused, and that was actually the the, the moment when uh, there are so many memes in Indonesia right now going on with me putting my hands on my on my head and just you know like oh, this is already at the end of the month. Uh, we have to pay the bills and so on. Just you know, some funny memes like that. Uh, and actually, that was the moment, the first game that I tried to really be concentrated you know uh and then be very calm not to get distracted or anything because yeah like i said the, this the stake is just very high absolutely for your for you and your family and for the indonesian chess community and then mm -hmm. since you, you you of course won all three games um and at that point you took home fourteen thousand dollars he got seven thousand dollars which is a subject of so much controversy irene i i have to say yeah. i i feel like it's getting too much attention. Like, I understand people are upset that he got $7,000. But at the same time, the bigger the bigger impact seems to be that a lot of this online bullying stopped, right? Mm -hmm. What was your perspective on the uh, the prize fund in the match? I already gave my statement before, before the match that 
me going to the podcast was about uh, questioning the credibility of the Dewa Kipas account. I don't have any other issue or you know any business with Mr. Dadang himself. Which, by the way, after the podcast, everyone was just twisting the news and saying that I'm challenging him in some in sort of way. Then I was like, no, I never challenge him. In fact, there are two other friends of mine who are, you know, one of them is a grandmaster and another one is international master who actually issued the challenge openly already, which Mr. Dadang refused to take uh, for some personal reasons. And I was actually uh, surprised that uh, when I did the podcast on Wednesday on and then on Thursday, this challenge was everywhere on social media that, you know, Mr. Dadang is challenging Irene. Uh, he felt humiliated by what Irene said during the podcast and so on and so on. So, yeah, I don't know. It's such a... Everything just got twisted. And then after that, during the match, or before the match, I said that I was there. Uh, the podcast was for the account of uh, the Waki Pass, but I'm here for the match because of the invitation by Deddy Corbusier. Let it be, I don't know, I don't know what motive he had. Uh, many people was actually thinking that this is something to prove whether Dewaki Pass is a cheater or not. But I was there as a chess professional. He invited me. He, uh, I mean, Dedi Kobusier invited me. He provided some prize money for the match and so on. That was all I take, yeah? Uh, about Mr. Dadan getting 7,000, I have no personal... Um, opinion about that because again my issue was with the Wakipas before and I just have to present the data why uh, the account of the Wakipas was closed or banned by chess.com and that's all. You wanted to be honest about um, your opinion and you know present that to the the mainstream and speaking of the mainstream press you obviously exploded after this match right like I, I saw some YouTube videos most of them are in Indonesian so I didn't really understand them but they were like uh talk show that you were invited to that seemed like a lot of fun where there was like yes. a guy that you played and you, you checkmated him on F7 and there was all sorts of kind of like gags, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there, were a lot of, there were a lot of fun events that you got to do after winning this match. Yes, I think everyone would agree with me. Like, uh, I think we have to seize the moment uh, to actually promote chess even, even bigger in Indonesia because you can't find such a hype in any other day, you know, and, and these things will go down by itself. Uh, sooner or later. So while we are actually in that peak of popularity, like I don't think chess has been this popular before in Indonesia. And before this case, I, ha I have been doing some chess promotion as well. So might as well just uh, take this opportunity to to be, you know, very, very consistent in, in promoting chess even even bigger. So before the incident, were you famous in Indonesia? Like were you ever recognized on the street? Yes, yes, you can say so. Uh, because, I mean, I've been face of Indonesian women, I guess, mm -hmm. for more than a decade. I've, I'm the first uh, woman grandmaster in Indonesia and, and so on and so on. So, yes. You were pretty famous and recognized on the street before. But since then, how, how big of a change has it been? Uh, very big, I would say. Like, I got recognized even more, even with a mask. <laughs> but this is a good thing. This is a good thing. I mean, this is a positive side effect of what happened. And um, I just want to use everything I have right now to really, really promote chess and make it even, you know, popular than before and get more young players to play. That's actually my goal, you know, to, to have a very good generation uh, because I can't always be 
like now, right? Um, so some young people must have replaced us uh, in the near future later. What was the best, most fun thing that you got to do since you played that match? I got to do this uh, car drift uh, recently with well, with one of Indonesian professional drifter. I was in the, he said, hot seat and he was just like drifting and then everyone would see what my expression is, whether I was scared or whether I was really excited or anything. And I was actually very excited. Um, it wasn't very scary for me. And so we had this idea to actually doing the same thing. But instead of just uh, enjoying it around, uh, we will actually play a blind chess. So we will communicate somebody, you know, I will play against somebody, which is also a high profile here in Indonesia. And let's say he will be in the tent of the of the other racers. And then I'll be in the car and then we'll communicate via either earphone or anything with the internet and so on. And we will just exchange the words like I'll send the notation and yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll be doing that uh, on this Sunday. So it's going to be very, very interesting. And we're also inviting um, our record museum in case that this actually can be something new that hasn't been done before in Indonesia. Like driving with a race car professional and doing the blind chess. That's so freaky because it's kind of like you're when you're playing blindfold chess, you're trying to like shut out all the other distractions in life, right? <laughs> That's amazing. exactly. And it was not only like a professional car uh, racer, but he's a drifter, so he's he's doing this sort of technique, you know, like to make it a bit scary, but you know, like just drifting. So drifting means like you you bring the car all the way to the left or to the right and like yes, at the last yes. time jerk back. Yes, but you were never yes. scared. I was never scared. I was very excited. Well, when we did that uh, a few days ago, but it's different story now. If I have to play chess, so that I don't know. It is going to be a, a high challenge for me because uh, I have to be very focused. But at the same time, you know, your surrounding is not quite supportive. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I listened to an interview um, with you a few years ago with Macaulay Peterson, and mm -hmm. you talked about your goal to become a grandmaster because you've got that mm -hmm. one norm. Now that you're getting so much support, do you feel like that's like a, a goal that you can kind of pursue um, once, you know, once the, the, the real big mainstream press uh, chaos like dies down a little bit? Well, I still have my personal goal, of course, and and that GM title is still, you know, my my priority. So I'm j I just can't wait, um, you know, to be back playing chess normally, like on the board, and we have uh, normal events overseas and so on. Because I haven't been traveling overseas for like a year, and it's it's actually my record. I always travel like every every once once a month or so. I'm still very much focused on my chess, although lately with all these activities, I have to uh, tone it down, of course, because I'm more to like chess promotion for now. And I think I'll be doing so for, for the next few weeks. But yes, in my spare time, I always try to insert my chess here and there. Now, if you are to become a grandmaster, and I, I certainly think you can do it, um, you are still very young. And considering your trajectory so far, I feel like this this bravery and this success should actually give you a push that, you know, if you can do that, you can do anything. That said, if you become a grandmaster, would you start playing in the Indonesian um, team overall, like in the Olympiad? Would you play for the open team or would you still want to play on the women's team to support other women in your country? I've been wanting to play in the open team since, um, I can't remember which Olympiad, but in the end, my federation kept me in the women's team and 
I mean, for a good reason. And they said, yeah, I'm still much needed in the women's team compared to the open's team. But of course, I have a desire to actually play in the open's team, you know, not in the women's team. But anyway, both teams are good for me. And, and I will be in either team where I feel much needed, then that, that, that's where I'll be. So you're, you're, you sound like you're very patriotic and it's just an honor to play for your country, um, regardless of whether it's the open or the women's team. Yes, because sometimes uh, you cannot always get what you want, but you just have to do what is best for others too. And so you've already qualified for the open team because you're fifth rank in the country. And, you know, based on the year, you've probably been on those um, those top spots to take one of the boards. Yes, yes, that's right. That's right. But turns out that my presence in the women's team is actually uh, giving a bigger impact, I guess, because... Um, our women's chess right now in Indonesia is just getting bigger and stronger. So I hope it will be like that for the next few years or even, you know, we can be one of the best in Asia as well because so far for the for the regional level, for the Southeast Asia, uh, Indonesian women's chess has been currently number one overtaking Vietnam. So that is quite an achievement for us. <laughs> How is the Queen's Gambit reception in Indonesia? Is it quite popular there as well? Um, Yes, definitely. It's it's quite popular. And everyone was just asking, oh, Irene is the Indonesian Queen's Gambit, you know, like just uh, reasoning like that, but, which I'm very happy about. After after the series, like whenever I give uh, some interview, they would they would definitely ask one of the questions about Queen's Gambit and how I felt about it, what is my opinion and so on. So it is, it is really, even though the series is in, is in English, but it can be taken very well for the Indonesian viewers as well. Yeah, you know, it makes sense, though, in your case, because, I mean, again, listening to the interview with Macaulay, you did have a very dedicated upbringing when it came to studying chess. It sounded like you were working on your regular studies because you've always been a good student. And then you were also playing and studying chess. Um, and these were really like your two passions. And you were very disciplined about giving many, many hours to both of them. How does that discipline, you know, uh, affect your life now? Um, I know right now is a special period where you're involved in lots of interviews and promotions. But when you are able to study chess again, do you still give it that kind of disciplined approach? Yes, uh, definitely. I think that is more to a trait within yourself that you're trying to grow over the years, uh, especially when you're growing up. So right now, whatever I do, I try to be excel at that. So that's why, that's why, yeah, this discipline is, is very important. Uh, now I'm doing more things than I, than I was before, but uh, the discipline trait itself will help you guide what is your priority in life and what is your priority at the time being and so on. So I think I have to give all the credits to my parents for bringing up in such a way because I think without them, I will not have this type of work ethic because uh, I think I, I, I pretty much have a good work ethic and that's why I have a very good time management in, in things that I do. So I very much hope that this actually be very fruitful and everyone can can also enjoy it. And were they very proud of you and supportive of you when you decided to come forward with your open letter and, you know, your your truth? Yes, definitely, definitely. Uh, those work very close to me and and know actually what I was talking about. Yeah, they're, they're very supportive, especially my parents, my family, my closest friends. Some of them are actually encouraging me not to speak up because they're, they, they love me for who I am and they don't want me to get hurt. But just because of uh, this reason, for example, 
my good friend Eric has been really looking after me, Eric Rosen. He is a shoulder to cry, actually. <laughs> so yeah, he's just look, he's really looking like, yeah, just do what is best for you. But yeah, he's just trying to protect me in all this online bullying. Like, uh, I don't know. But he's just very he's been very supportive. So uh I'd like to give him a shout out actually for uh, one of my good friends who are really supporting me through this um, hard period. Eric Rosen is like the nicest good chess player, Grandmaster Strength and Blitz. And apparently it's not all appearances. He really is that nice a guy. It's actually a very hard period for me. If if I must go through this alone, then I don't know if I can do it. So all the supports, you know, um, whether it's seen or, or unseen, you know, I always felt it. What do you suggest to people or advise to people who are experiencing online bullying? I mean, we hope that nobody listening to this, that we obviously have a lot of girls and teenagers who listen to this. Mm-hmm. And I, I hope nobody's getting a million negative messages. They probably aren't. But, you know, for for young people, even like, you know, one mean message can be very uh, distracting and upsetting. What do you suggest to people when they when they uh, experience online bullying themselves? Uh, so this is this is something new that I haven't encountered before, and I hope I, I will not encounter it again in the future. It can be very very discouraging. It can be very you know very bad influence to your life. And then all in all, I, I felt like I have spoken some truth, you know, the version of the truth uh, for myself. Then I felt like. Whatever the risk, it needs to be spoken out. And I felt that sooner or later, things will will be settled and then the truth will resurface. So I find some comfort in what's going on in the future later, as in this will not go forever. It will have its moment uh, when it will go down or die. So I think when you are experiencing such a period, you just have to be very, very strong mentally, mentally and reaching out uh, for help. Really, uh, don't be embarrassed if you are if you really need help, if you really need some counseling, if you really need some some friends, you know, to talk about the matter. And that's actually what I had during that period. And that's what helped me uh, emotionally so that I could actually uh, perform well in my matches and also didn't do any mistake let's say in my interviews because it's very easy to be emotional and then you know give more insults or or more negative statements and I was very careful in all my statements and yeah I'm just happy for for how everything has turned right now so I I think that's all I could say just be very very strong and seek help that's important. And the people that helped you, it sounded like you had a lot of supportive people around you, your family mm-hmm. in Indonesia, your friends in Indonesia, and then some of your international friends like Eric mm-hmm. Rosen and his family. What is like the best approach that people can take if they're trying to support someone who is making a difficult decision, you know, um, you know, weighing practicality and truth with the risk of, you know, some some really practical implications that could be devastating? Like what what is that support look like? Just being there? What was the best thing that somebody said to you? I think uh, it would be about reaching out and not just doing it out of courtesy, but really reaching out and offer your help um, and then and do it when when being asked. So I don't really like it when when actually we're we're doing this uh, or we are having this uh, period. And then somebody asking like, oh, Irene, what is going on? You know, like, 
I was like, come on, dude, you can Google it up. You can just try to find, I know everything is Indonesian, but I'm sure you have been doing your research before doing this podcast and everything mostly is Indonesian, right? So it's not that something that can't be accessible. It, it is accessible if you want to. So instead of asking what's going on and so on, uh, it's, yeah, you, you better just do your own research first and try to have an educated guess of what's going on instead of asking the related person. And then after that, yeah, you offer your help and, and really mean it, really mean it. Um, because sometimes you can also see uh, some of your friends or some of your colleagues uh, telling you, oh, come on, uh, let me know if, you, if I can help anything. But when you're actually reaching out to them, and, oh, I'm sorry, I'm busy. Just be sincere. I think sincerity is very important. The strong character that you developed that allowed you to, you know, make these uh, these difficult decisions. Do you think that chess had anything to do with building that character? Uh, definitely, definitely, yes. I've been playing chess for about 20 years. And uh, there was a moment when I actually hit my rock bottom emotionally. But then I could I could get up again uh, less than a day and then, you know, and started giving statements and so on. And then clarification in a calm vibe you know in a positive positive uh thinking yes chess has much to do with it because during my professional years of chess i suffered lots of losses but then i have to I have to come back again for another day for another game and and try to forget about my loss and you know perform as if that was my first round and and that taught me a lot uh not only during this hard period, but also in most of my other hard periods as well. So yes, chess has given me so much, you know, both emotionally, financially, and everything else in my life. You spent quite a while in the United States, right? A couple of years. Are, are you anxious to come back? And what was your favorite thing about um, visiting our country? Yes, I, I always look forward to come back to the US. I haven't been there since my graduation in 2017. And uh, all my chess events have been uh, involving so much around Europe or our Asia continents. So not very much about US. And if I had to fly to the US, it's going to be a very, you know, long trip because of the geographical distance also is very huge. But yes, after this pandemic, definitely I will, I will make all, all the lists of the countries that I, I will visit. One of them must be the US. And I think... Having lived in St. Louis for a couple of years, it's it's really it's a really good experience. I was actually at the St. Louis Chess Club teaching one of the classes, and actually uh, the name of the class that you are having for your podcast right now is the Ladies Night class. And um, yeah, everything was a great experience. I if I could turn back time, I would I would redo it all over again. <laughs> Do you think Americans, when the pandemic is over and the world opens up again, they should visit Indonesia? What do you think? Yes, definitely. I think both the U.S. and Indonesia, we have many great things in our countries. So for Indonesia, for example, not about some promotion right now, but it really is. If you've been to Bali or if you've been to Lombok, we have so many good places around to, you know, the beaches, the mountains and, you know, all the places for snorkeling or for diving. Like after this pandemic, I just want to travel because I haven't been out of my city for a year and it's crazy, it's crazy. But yeah, but chess is what I, I miss most, like playing, you know, a serious chess over the board. That's, that's what I really miss a lot. You miss just the chess pieces, moving them on a board as opposed to a screen? Yes, definitely. I need an opponent 
in front of me and also the 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 chill and the thrill before the game you know all this preparation and so on i i miss all those feelings yeah because you know you you have that deep focus that you you know executed even in this famous match against in the uh the close the door podcast where you mm-hmm. uh you did attract millions of viewers well where do you see indonesian chess in 5 years do you think it's possible that the women's team could be just as strong as the open team yeah i think so i think it's possible uh we have a good trajectory for women's chess as well since i became a woman grandmaster is just uh, developing even better and better and i'm sure after what happened and after the the boom of chess in indonesia we will have uh, more and more girls or maybe other players like uh, other other boys as well to play and before we seek for quality we just have to increase the quantity first so i think this is already one one huge step for indonesian chess development well thank you so much for all you that you do um same thing in the united states by the way we got to get that quantity up and then of course there will be some women and who take it super seriously and some who just use it as a stepping stone to another um point in their education or career which is also fantastic to be honest so that's i like i like all of it <laughs> I was so happy. I know that the story started out a bit negative, you know, cheating scandals always are, but mm-hmm. I really feel like you concluded in the most positive way possible and also um with a a wonderful feminist flourish that it was the uh the top female in the country who was able to uh save the day. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was really beautiful to see. Thank you so much for all that you do, Irene, and for taking the time to visit me on Ladies Night. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and giving me the floor to actually share my story. And of course, we can find you all over social media and you started doing more streaming on Irene Sukander at Twitch, which is in both English and Indonesian. You kind of switch back and forth, right? Yeah, yeah, because uh, I cannot just stick to one language because most of uh, my fears are also from Indonesia and sometimes they try to interact me in Indonesian language, but on Twitch I mostly do the streaming in English. All right, wonderful. Well, I'll catch you there later. Irene Sukander, uh, thank you so much for joining us on Ladies Night. Thank you, Jen. If you like what we're doing at US Chess to encourage women and girls to explore STEM fields, accentuate competence, and approach an even ratio with a focus on intersectionality, your donation to our US Chess Women programs is always appreciated and tax deductible. The US Chess Suite of podcasts, including Ladies Night, are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Don't forget to listen and subscribe to all US Chess podcasts from One Move at a Time, Cover Stories, and The Chess Underground. Till next time, may every night be ladies' night. Now according to Sockfish... Victory.